Welcome back, Hemming Brainiacs, to the pod, talking about 13.2, another short reading. Much like the hapless reporter, says Swim, we have been buttonholed by George as he continues to reminisce about his past in the South Downs. I predict we will be subjected to lectures about the Boer War in coming readings. Yikes. Cool. I mean, cool. I say yikes, but, you know, that might be actually pretty interesting, so... Not yikes. I take that back. I I take back that yikes. Now, no further ado tonight. Let's keep reading. We walked on together in delightful sympathy, but had not gone very far when we caught sight of Colville coming down the driveway, walking very fast, his shoulders set well back, his toes turned out militia fashion as the driveway led only to the downs. It could hardly have been otherwise than that he had been to Fresh Coombe. So I asked other, after the rabbits. He said that he was thinking of letting the place and his inner and his voice and manner left me in no doubt that he did not wish to talk about business, a thing that never happens when business is going well with a man. It may therefore have been to escape from further questions that he begged me to excuse him if he walked on in front, saying he had some letters to write which he wished to go away by the night's post. But he had not gone very far when the squire said, in that low, sad voice which is the best part of my recollection of him, that Collie had gone to work too expensively and had left too many rabbits on the ground. All my sympathy was aroused in the instant, but the squire's talk was always in sudden remarks, and as he required a long silence between each, we had passed through the gate leading to the lawn before he spoke again. Something was preparing in his mind, but before he could utter it, we met Florence and Ducie, whom I had hit the toe, thought of as a blonde Saxon girls. They were now middle-aged women, Dulce, looking as old as Florence, though younger by a couple of years, silent women, a little abrupt in their speech, more like their father than their mother. Their mother's portrait might be introduced into the present text if it had not been written years ago and published in a volume entitled Memoirs of My Dead Life. My portrait is too long for quotation. It cannot be curtailed by me, at least, and paraphrases out of the question to a man who has written something that he felt deeply and written he thinks truly. The pages entitled of Remembrance have enhanced any charm that my narrative may have, but the omission cannot be avoided. My reader must read them in the memoirs, and I doubt then not that when he has read them he will ask himself the question which I am now asking myself. Would her gay, kindly mind have saved me from the folly of talking of the Boer War during dinner? If he has learned to know me at all, he will probably think she would have failed. The fact that I had come down to Sussex to escape from opinions did not save me from talking of the value of small nationalities before the soup tureen was removed from the table and to the dear squire, who thought without circumlocutions, it was enough for him to know that his country was at war. He answered, My dear Rory, the Boers invaded our territory, and he sat holding a piece of cake in both his hands, as if he were afraid that somebody would take it from him. As he munched it, he kept his eyes fixed on the cake itself with an expression on his face that plainly read, I'll have another piece presently. Golville and I had often noticed this little trick of his and had laughed over it. The charm of domestic life 
is its intensity. Each learns to know the other in his or her every peculiarity, physical and mental. We had often noticed the squire's habit of waggling his foot from time to time when he lay back in his armchair in the billiard room after dinner, purling at his pipe in silence. Colville had drawn my attention to it and to the old slippers and the grey socks. Colville was a friendly fellow, with a good deal of the squire's natural kindness in him and a disposition for a pleasant talk. But when I went to dash for this last time, I found him immersed in his accounts in and in himself, to the exclusion of the Boer War, and the mistakes of the English generals, so preoccupied was he with the business of his farm, that as soon as he had finished his pipe, he went to his brown paper parcel, which he untied and produced his diary, saying that his entries were in arrear, and begging of us to excuse him, he began his preparations for transcribing his life. They were always the same. First he saw for scribbling paper and taking his letters from his breast pocket he utilised the envelopes cutting them open carefully it took him some time to unclasp his pen knife and to sharpen the pencil with which he drafted out the events of the last three days he then tramped out of the room his toes well turned out returning his pen and ink and blotting paper the diary was unlocked and getting it well before him he copied his notes in a calligraphy that would have honoured a medieval scrivener. Rory, what has become of the chest of cigars? With this remark, the squire broke the silence abruptly and laughed timidly, for he was conscious of a change in the atmosphere. All the same, he laughed, for he liked to remember how, on the occasion of my first visit, he had offered me a cheroot. But I had gone upstairs, saying, Perhaps you would like one of my cigars and returned with an oaken chest containing about a thousand of all kinds. My visit was only for a few days, and in the squire's recollection I had said, Well, you see, one can only carry half a dozen cigars in a case, and if one brings a box, one never knows if one will care for that brand, so I thought it's safer to bring the chest. And when the squire spoke of this chest of cigars of thirty years ago, he never failed to speak of my adventure that very same evening at Shoreham Gardens, whither I had insisted on going, though Colville had refused to accompany me, and strove to dissuade me with the report that on Saturday nights it was frequented by London roughs, came down for the day. I would get myself into trouble, certainly, but I had gone to the gardens, and the family had sat up, anxious for my safety, and great indeed was the commotion when I returned about midnight with a long tale of adventure and an eye that would be black in the morning. My friends cherished these stories, which had lost all interest for me, and the squire's next anecdote I had clean forgotten how on the Monday I had peppered his keeper at eighty yards because he persisted in porching rabbits while still alive, Though I had told him I did not approve of such cruelty, some hunting anecdotes in which Colville had a share we were added, and a little later we went to our several beds, myself depressed and hopeless, anxious to forget in sleep that I had been able, unable to keep the Boer War out of the conversation. Sleep closed over me, and the next morning I awoke thinking that perhaps it might be as well to go back to London by the twelve o'clock from Brighton, 
that the ride to Findan had been mentioned overnight, and just as if nothing had happened, the squire told me after breakfast that he had ordered his horse to be saddled for me. Colville said he would not be able to meet me at Fresh Coombe, and in a voice that did not seem altogether friendly, he gave me his hand, however, saying that he would bid me goodbye since I was going away by the five o'clock. His sisters went to their different occupations, expecting me back for lunch. Florence, hoping I would not talk any more about that horrid war, Dolce lingering to ask me why I wanted to go to Finden, and on such a day I mentioned a horse but did not know what answer to give back when she reminded me that the horse fair is in May, and reading suspicions of some woman in her eyes, I sprang into the saddle and rode away. A new nag, the squire had said. She goes easily on the roads, but pulls a bit on the downs. A rushing, querulous animal, lean as a rake. I soon discovered her to be a hide, hardly thicker than a glove, saved her, but little from the cold showers and the hard winds that rushed down upon us from the hills. A very different day, I said, as I pulled at her, from the day that the squire and I rode over to Finden to the fair. One of my pleasantest recollections was that ride, and despite my exasperated humour, it was impossible for me to resist the temptation as I rode down the valley to recall how the squire and myself had gone out on horseback one morning in May, looking as we jogged along side by side by the edge of the valley through which the Ardor flows, like figures out of an old ballad. Never did larks rise out of the grass and saw, roistering as abundantly as they did that morning. We t walked, we trotted, we cantered our horses till we came to Finden's sunny hollow, filled with its fair. Many horses were at tether, some were being trotted up and down by the gypsies. I reined in to see a boy ride a bay pony on a halter over a gate held up for the jump in the middle of the field, and while the squire talked with an acquaintance I sat at gaze, lost in admiration of a group of comely larches. They seemed to me like women engaged with their own beauty, so gracefully did they lull themselves on that sweet wind, every one. I felt sure, aware of her own long shadow on the grass. Our returning, though less vividly remembered, was not less pleasing than our going forth, and my humour must have been harsh indeed that February day to have imperiled so delightful a recollection by riding to Finden alone under dark skies and through bitter winds along grey river lands. It was not in my intention, I suppose, to find Sussex beautiful, and the dun tumult of the downs showing against the rainy sky suggested the welcome thought that I had been befooled, and that this English country was the ugliest in the world and its weather the worst. Not a living thing in sight, not even a stray sheep in the wintry hollow, I said, and turned my horse's head towards fresh coombe, asking myself how I ever could have thought the downs beautiful, by what distortion of sight, by what trick of the brain, because of her, and I rode, thinking of her presence in one room and in another, until the day described in a remembrance floated by. And we following all that remained of her to Shoreham Churchyard. Death is in such strange contradiction to life that it is no matter for wonder that we recoil from it, and turn to remembrances and find recompense in perceiving that those we have loved 
live in our memories as intensely as if they were still before our eyes, and it is, and it would seem, therefore, that we should garner and treasure our past and forbear to regret partings with too much grief, however dear our friends may be, for in parting from us all their imperfections will pass out of sight, and they will become dearer and nearer to us. The present is no more than a little arid sand dribbling through the neck of the hourglass, but the past may be compared to a shrine in the coin of some sea cliff, whither the white birds of recollections come to roost and rest a while and fly away again into the darkness, but the shrine is never deserted far away, up from the horizon's line, other white birds come, wheeling and circling to take the place of those that have left and are leaving. So did my memories of her seem to me as they came to me over the downs, her forgettable winsomeness, her affection for me, her love of her husband and of her child were remembered. And the atrocious war which forbade me to love them in the present could not prevent me from loving them in the past. The scratches and deserted appearance of the hillside interrupted my meditations, and on looking through the iron hurdles I could see that what the squire had said was true, for in trying to find the most profitable way of catching his rabbits, Colville had allowed too many to remain on the ground. Every stoat had been destroyed and the foxes driven out, but one cannot disturb the balance of nature with impunity. After eating all the grass, the rabbits had gnawed the bark of the firs, and afterwards the thorn trees, these thorns will never blossom again, I said, as I rode amid sand heaps and burrows innumerable, without, however, seeing anywhere a white scut. Only rabbits can destroy rabbits and the Belgian hares. What has become of them? I asked, remembering how haplessly they used to hop about after the keeper every season, seeing fewer of them. None had mated with the wild rabbit, and all our labour in the backyard had been in vain. The lambs bleated over the yoves. A raven rebalanced himself in the blast of a lookout of carrion, and after watching the bird for some time, I rode along the iron fence. The lodge seemed deserted, and I asked myself what would become of the iron hurdles. Will he sell them as scrap iron and allow nature to redeem the hills from trace of our ambitions? I wandered and rode away upon my own errand, which I reminded myself was not to muse over the destruction of fresh comb, but to discover if there were one spot on the downs which still appealed to my sympathies. An ugly rolling country, it all seemed. Hill after hill rolled up from the sea with deep valleys set between, in which the flock follows the bellwether. Yet these valleys had once inspired thoughts of the patriarchal ages. But if the downs didn't please me, the wheeled wood and I rode by the windmill, its great arms roaring as they went round in the blast, frightening my horse, and sat for a long time studying with hatred the dim blue expanse that lay before me like a map, beading Edburton, Poynings, New Horton, I knew well, Foking and New Timber far away lost in violet haze, and I could see, or fancied I could see, the brook which Colville had jumped years ago, a landscape, I said, that Rubens might have thought worth painting, but which Roustiel would have turned from, it being without a blue hill or melancholy scrap or torrent or anything that raises the soul out of an engulfing materialism and all the things that I used to love 
a red-tiled cottage at the end of a lane, with a ponderous team coming through a gateway, followed by a yokel in a smock frock I hated, and in pursuit of my hatred I resolved to visit Beeding, a town that I had once loved. But of what use to descend into it, I asked myself, and without knowing why I was going there, I let my mare slide herself down the steep chalk path on her haunches. A straggling village street was all I could discover in beating an ugly brick village, and interested in my unrelenting humour, I began the ascent of my of the downs, instead of returning home by the road so that I might give the resistive mare the gallop which she was craving for, she plunged her way up the hillside. Lord Leckenfield's lads were crossed at a hand gallop, and looking back at the windmill I cursed it as an ugly thing, and remembering with satisfaction that there are few in Ireland, I reined up and overlooked the great space from Chantonbury ring past Lansing, whither Worthing lies seeking to discover the reason why I liked the Downs no longer, the names of different fields as they came up in my mind irritated me. What name more absurd for that old barn that, than Thunder's Barrow Barn? A few minutes later I was on the crest above Anchor Hollow, whither ships came in the old days, so it was said, and, but for the fact that my friends would lose their land, I doubt if I should have found any great cause for regret in the news that they were certain to come there again. I remembered how the coast towns light up in the evening. Garlands of light reaching from Worthing to Lansing to Amberley to Shoreham to Southwick and on the Brighton. There is no country in England, even the downs are encircled with lights and my thoughts turned from them to the dim waste about Law Curra, only lighted here and there by tallow dips passing from Mayo to Galway. I remembered Edward's castle and the Burren Mountains and the lake out of which thirty-six wild swans had risen, while Yeats told me of the shadowy waters, and with, with such distant lands and such vague primeval people in my mind, it was impossible for me to appreciate any longer the sight of ploughing on the downs, yet I once watched old Rogers lift the coulter, from the vore when he came to the headland, and the great horses turn, the ploughboy yarking and lashing his whip all the time, but now my humour was such that I could hardly answer his cheery good day, sir, and when the squire asked me how the mare had carried me, I said that she didn't like the ploughboy's whip and nearly, and very nearly got me off her back, off her ba barrack, as old Rogers would say. He was just at the end of his vore, and the horses would were just coming around, just a coming round. So you no longer care about your down speech, the squire said, and he would have wished me to stay on for a few days for the sake of his billiards in the evening. But Dulcie said that it would be better if it were went away and came down again, and Florence seemed to agree with her that I had not been as nice this time as I had been on other occasions. So I am certain that there must have been a mingled sadness and perplexity in my eyes on bidding these dear friends of mine goodbye. I must have known that the friendship of many years, one that meant much to all of us, was now over, ended, done to death by an idea that had come into my life some months ago without warning, undesired, uncalled for. It had been repulsed more than once, and with all the strength I was capable of, 
but it had gotten possession of me all the same, and it was now my master, making me hate all that I had once loved. And that's the chapter. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.